The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts, and longtime China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society, and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How did the Chinese see these issues? I recently caught a rare viewing of a 2001 Chinese film, Lan Yu. It tells the story of two gay men falling in love and finding domestic life throughout the reform and opening years. The filmmakers never bothered to apply for approval from the censors, knowing that its homosexual storyline would never make it past the moralistic communist standards. On this episode, I take a look at the place of homosexuality in traditional Chinese mindset and under these years of communism. I'm delighted to be joined by Zhang Yongning, the producer of Lan Yu, who is now based in the UK, and Liu Yiling, a writer covering Chinese society, technology and internet culture, who has written on the topic. We spend a lot of time talking about gay men and not much about other LGBT communities, but I'll certainly come back to those in future episodes. I started by asking Yiling how she thought that Chinese society saw homosexuality. It's a broad question, but I would say that it's definitely evolved over the years, depending on how far you want to go back. One thing I'd say is that China doesn't have a very deep-seated tradition of homophobia. Or another way of saying it is that Chinese religious traditions, unlike, say, Christianity or Islam, like didn't necessarily condemn homosexuality, even if they did not recognize it. And so, like, if you go back into Chinese history and literature, like, there are a lot of references to homosexual relationships that are referred to in ways that are not negative. Obviously, a simplification, but I think some of the more kind of pathological associations with queerness uh, were adopted like in the turn of the 19th century when China began to like embrace technology and science and modernization from the West. And then I would say it really took a, it took a plunge during the Cultural Revolution, only kind of becoming more accepted in like Deng Xiaoping's reform and opening era. And I think that's why it's very complicated now, because there is a huge kind of opening and acceptance, at least relative to the past, at least from the perspective of the state. But, you know, still a deep-seated sense of stigma towards gay people in the sense of family, kind of like a more kind of Confucian relationship to family and preserving the family line. And so... It's complicated. That's the best way that I would describe it. The state is ambiguous towards homosexual issues. It decides to kind of constrain when it wants to. And I think people are both open and closed depending on who you ask and who you speak to. 
Mm, I'm sure that's right. And Ning, how, how much would you agree with that? Because obviously we're seeing, as Yiling is saying, that in traditional Chinese culture, there isn't this religious opposition to homosexuality, at least. Nevertheless, there is a Confucian ideal, this need to pass down your family lines, which obviously not necessarily compatible with certain LGBT lifestyles. What, what do you think? I think I would agree mostly with Yiling, what she just said. Because I think Chinese, traditional Chinese culture is very tolerant towards homosexuality. China had actually had a very, very long history of homosexuality. And I think homosexuality itself is new to Chinese. But the same sex, sex, China had a long, long, long history of, of this. Same sex, sex. For example, the very famous book by Shodran, Tell of the White Snake and the Dream of the Red Chamber, The Butterfly's Lovers. This book has actually, especially the, the Tale of the White Snake, I think is the first book, literature book, actually talked about uh, same-sex loves, for example, between Fa Hai, the monk, and uh, Xu Xian. I think the is is as long as as long as the man produces the the children carries the family line, as long as you do that, fulfill the responsibility, family responsibility or social responsibility, it's fine. I think it's very tolerant. It. I think the problem now is that uh, in today's China, if homosexuality, the gay people starting asking for rights then you will be in huge trouble. As long as you are not talking about the rights, then you are safe. Mm. So I think it's very, very hard to define. Mm-hmm. And then would you also say that this is an attitude that is changing over time? Because Lan Yu, your film, came out in 2001. It's the same year that homosexuality was declassified as a mental illness by law. So do you think that attitudes back in the 90s, are different to how they are now? I think so, because I think one thing I'm very proud of my film, Lan Yu, is that uh, Lan Yu had actually changed many people's minds towards homosexuality. Because uh, traditionally, people think, people if you talk about somebody's gay, um, immediately people think stereotype, you know, little queenie-looking, very girly-looking, man, which is not true, you know, partly, but not true. So for Lai Yu, when we're doing the casting, we deliberately try to avoid that because I believe gay man could be anybody, could be my colleague, could be my neighbor, could be my friends, could be anybody. It doesn't have the, you know, clear sign to say I'm a gay or something. So we, that's how... I think that changed people's mind quite a bit. But now it's changing. Amongst the people, amongst the young people in particular, it's more accepted or tolerant amongst the people. But for the political reason, I think it is. It isn't because uh, the party want to take a, make an enemy. So they, they realize that the homosexuality is coming from West. If influence the West, mm. so anything to do with West, we somehow we will tackle. So it's it's a strange situation in China. I think 
Yeah, I mean, China in so many ways is a country of contradictions and paradoxes. Ning, maybe now would be a good chance for you to just quickly explain for listeners what Lanyu is about, because I was very grateful to have caught a recent showing of it in London at your invitation. And to your point about how, you know, you were proud to make it because it normalized what a gay person would be like. So maybe you can, um, for, for listeners who haven't seen Lanyu, who don't know what it's about, just give us a brief summary of, of what it is. Okay, the film was adapted from an internet novel called The Beijing Story, written by a Beijing comrade Beijing. It's about this uh, successful man, and uh, who's playing around with man, with with woman, with man, both. And one day, he saw this university student wanted to have a sex. So that's how how the story started. I mean. The story attracted me attracted me was that because to my generation, gay or homosexuality is a very mysterious or unknown word. Mm. My generation, a man between man, we can sleep together, we can touch each other without problem because it's not a big deal. But when you're talking about a two man in love, or two men can even make a family to my generation as a huge, huge thing. I was so surprised to hear, to see actually two men can be in love in that way. So that is what really attracted me. So I, so I wanted to make film and to experience how can two men be in that kind of situation, even, you know, in love and make a family. So that's how, that's what, what, what really made me to feel I like to make a film about it, just to experience what it's like to be in that situation. Mm. And Yiling, I, I wanted to get you together because Lan Yu clearly has such an impact on the men that you've spoken to. And just an aside to listeners, Yoning, you just used the word comrade. Maybe it's worth mentioning that comrade in Chinese, Tongzhi, is a kind of euphemism for, you know, the gay man. I guess semi-ironically, maybe. Um, so, Elaine, can you tell us what the comrades, as it were, the comrades that you spoke to, what they got out of Lan Yu? Yeah, I mean, I would say that Lan Yu is like a touchstone in queer cinema in China. Like, it completely changed the minds of, like, thousands and thousands of gay men who were able to watch the film. And before that, the web novel that came before it, Beijing Guoshu, Beijing Story, was also something that reached a lot of readers before the film popularized it. And um, for example, one character who I speak to or person that I've written about is uh, Gong Le, who is the CEO of a gay dating app, Blue D or Danlan Wang. And his kind of coming out story and, and his kind of reckoning with his sexuality, a internet cafe opened up in like middle of nowhere city where he's from and he sat down and found Beijing Guoshu, Beijing story by Beijing comrade and he read the whole story in one sitting and realized like oh my gosh I'm not alone and so from what I understand the kind of pivotal impact that Lan Yu and Beijing Guoshu had on a, for a lot of gay men who were growing up in the 90s in the turn of the millennium was that moment of like, this is something, this is actually a thing. Like there are other people out there in the world who love the way that I do and desire the way that I do. And so 
one thing I would say is Lanyu is definitely like huge for people in the 90s and the early 2000s. People were coming of age then. The people who I speak to are a little younger, maybe currently in their 20s or born after the 2000s or born after the 90s, they all know Lanyu. But maybe they came of age at a time where they had access to like a whole roster of other films on the internet, right? They could watch Gossip Girl. I mean, I spoke to someone who was like, I came out because I realized that like one of the characters on Gossip Girl was gay, you know, or Brokeback Mountain. I think like foreign films start becoming also pivotal. And I think for even younger generation, like they watch Lan Yu and it, it feels a little distant because it's so tragic. Like it's such a sad and harrowing story. Like it's set against the backdrop of Tiananmen, the main character, the protagonist dies, you know, and if you're like a 20 something gay man in China right now, like that's not part of your reality necessarily. And so I think, you know, some TV shows, there's a TV show in 2016 called uh, Shangying or Addicted. And it's about like two high school boys falling in love. So Lan Yu to them is like the like tome, you know, like the queer tome that that spawned all these other the films. Canons. Exactly. Um, and something like Shangying is like, oh, this is a reflection of my life, you know, or even something like, or not not call me by your name, right? Because they watch that and they're like, okay, these are two white dudes in Italy, like having a vacation. Whereas they see something like Shangying and they're like, okay, this is a reflection of of my reality. But yeah, Lan Yu was the kind of, from what I understand, like the, the film that sparked it all. So Yongming, you really, you really started something by creating that film. Yeah, and, and I think Lan Yu in particular is popular amongst the women audience. I think most of the audience are women. I did ask them so why you were sort of so, so keen on this film because they most people say because give them some kind of thing to think about when they're alone mm. in t- today's life. People are lonely, and by watching that film gives them uh, quite something to think about. But unfortunately, the film isn't that popular amongst the Chinese gay community, especially the people who read the book, always traditional thinking. They wanted Lanyu to be more girly, more pretty, good-looking. So Liu Ye didn't meet that kind of image. So not that popular. <laughs> but among, um, amongst the straight man, I think it still hasn't reached that far yet. So amongst the women, yes. I think people think after watching the film, they think, wow, the man, gay men are not that bad after all. It's not that the way we thought about them. They're normal, they're sweet, they're lovely, all that, yeah. Yiling, can we talk about the younger generation then? Because that, that's a lot of the people that you've talked to and written about. And you've mentioned Gen Le, who, of course, after he came out, he then created Blue D. Tell us about the social media platforms that so dominate the lives of younger generations of LGBT people in China. Mm. So I'd say specifically for gay men, Blue D is definitely the largest gay dating app in China and the largest gay dating app in the world, actually. I think it's like double the size of Grindr. Then within the kind of gay social networking app kind of list, there used to be 
other apps that have come and gone really quickly. There's an app called Zank. There was an app called Aloha that got acquired by Bluedy. There's a lesbian app called Rilla. There's a lesbian app called Lesdo that got acquired by Bluedy. So Bluedy has almost kind of established this monopoly in terms of the kind of gay social networking world. And then, of course, there are just other platforms, WeChat, Weibo, Douyin, where queer content exists at varying levels at different times, uh, depending on what year you're looking at and what state the kind of political situation is in. The internet definitely just changed a lot in terms of, I would say, most crucially, LGBT visibility. Just knowing, like, if you were in the 90s or the 80s, you think you're the only gay person in the world. That's basically impossible if you are growing up in the internet age. It doesn't necessarily mean life is a lot easier, but in terms of feeling less alone and in terms of being able to connect with other communities, that makes a huge difference. As Yoning was saying earlier, the only thing that it doesn't do is that it doesn't give you a forum to push for any type of political rights, right? It's a big community. It's a big place where you can feel visible. But once you start like pushing for legal recognition or trying to change things in the courts, that's when things are crossing a line. And so this might be taking your question too far, but I think uh, one big reason that Blue D has managed to survive where so many other uh, gay dating apps have not is its ability to stay within those confines, to purely frame its existence around the pink economy, around public health, and not at all around kind of politics. Mm. Yiling, do you know whether or not Blue D has been impacted by the tech crackdown of the government over the last few years? I would say in like a direct way, in the sense that the tech crackdown has forced Blue to close. But I would say absolutely in the sense that the tech crackdown has created a very like hostile environment for tech companies to operate. And so I think, I mean, Blue has two strikes against it. It's a tech company and it's also an LGBT organization. And both of those have felt the burn. From the tech perspective, I think it's mostly financial, which is like, it's just not making money. And so actually recently, Bluedy went private. So they just went public in 2020 in this big kind of mm. a flashy IPO. And I mean, at this moment, a tons of Chinese companies are going private. So I think it's part of that wave. I mean, on the other side, there's the LGBT component, which is, I mean, even in 2019, when I was writing that piece, I think the environment was very different from what it is today to bring in your earlier question about just general progress. Um, I think in the long term, absolutely, there's been huge progress just in terms of like openness towards LGBT people and visibility. But I think if we were to look in the short term between 2019 and today, I think we would definitely see backsliding and reversal. I think a lot of like college campus LGBT groups have been shut down. There's definitely this reframing of LGBT organizations as like civil society groups and kind of Western, like hostile Western forces, which is a little sad and unexpected given, you know, the long-term trend. But I think Bluedy has not mm. suffered direct blows as far as I'm concerned, but it's obviously being just like constrained by this broader environment. Mm. So 
Ning, in a little bit, I want to talk to you about the government's response that we've kind of hinted at all the way through. But for now, I also just wonder, you know, throughout this whole conversation, we've been talking about gay men quite a lot. What about what about lesbians? What about bisexual people? And, and we haven't really mentioned trans people either. But of course, there's a very interesting trans reality TV star, TV host, whatever you like to call her, called Jingxing, who is a very popular household name. So what space do those identities sit in in China? You know, um, homosexuality and uh, same-sex sex are different. So in China, uh, amongst the gay community, a lot of people still stays in that same-sex sex period. So so homosexuality has a long way to go. I think still people think thinking, you know, you can have sex, but not not to love or not to build family. It's still a long way to go. I think amongst the lesbian community, it's much more solid, much more mature, much more healthier. Um, so, you know, has, China has still has a long way to develop, to become terms what homosexuality is about. Not just uh, same-sex sex. Mm-hmm. And Yiling, let's talk about the politics then, because you've written about this dance with the authorities and we've talked in this conversation about how Blue D has been successful because it's not political. I see in that a slight difference between the authorities' reaction to feminism, for example, to the Me Too movement in China, which has often become political and therefore they have been treated as political by the government as well. So... If you keep your head down, if you keep your homosexuality, your sexuality to yourself, is that the way basically the authorities will turn a blind eye to you as well? Yeah, and I think like it's not just uh, kind of keeping it to yourself. I think as long as you keep it within your private sphere, so within your family, within your friend groups, it starts getting trickier when you bring it to your professional life because there aren't exactly any laws in place that prevent discrimination against queer people in the workplace. Though that being said, there have been lawsuits that have been, you know, pushing in that direction. But, you know, like a gay dating app is not going to bring a claim to the court. And so I spoke to a Chinese lawyer once who specializes in Chinese LGBT issues. And he said that gay social networking apps are basically like gay bars in America before the Stonewall era in the sense that they serve as closets and they're safe spaces. But outside of that, there's nothing you can do. And so like Stonewall activists were saying, you know, get out of the gay bar out onto the streets. I think people who are playing it less safe in China would say, you know, get out of, get offline, get off of the apps into the courts where like real kind of legal change can happen. And in the past, there have been, you know, legal battles that have actually succeeded. There was in 2017, an activist called Yenzi who filed a lawsuit against a conversion therapy institute that successfully brought them down. And so, you know, like, I think the contrast, the feminist movement is actually very interesting because the two have a lot of overlaps. And it actually brings me to my, to your earlier point, which is 
I think the lesbian communities and trans communities can sometimes feel shunted. Like, like everywhere in the world, gay men take a lot more space or just have had a lot more voice to speak in comparison to other uh, sexual minorities. And so a lot of the lesbian community, I'd say, actually is more rooted in the feminist movement than purely just the LGBT mm. movement. There's a lot of overlap between the two. And the feminist movement, at least earlier on in the like 2012s up until 2015, like really pursued a much more like out on the streets, if not like out on Weibo, um, kind of confrontational method of pushing for their rights for the better or for the worse. That being said, women do have a unique leverage, which is women hold up half the sky, right? If you anger 50% of the population, like stuff is going to go down, right? Whereas I think like if you're gay, it's still a very much significantly smaller percentage of the population that actually don't have any official like status, right? Like the women are represented by the All China Women's Federation. There's no like All China Gay Men's Federation or All China LGBT Federation. What about last year's announcement from the the education ministry in China that talked about how we need to encourage physical education so that our boys are not going to be, well, the word they used was nyang, so like feminine or sissy. Do you see that as a attack on the LGBT community or is it literally just about the aesthetics of the thing because they're worried about the influence of, say, K-pop or whatever? I think at core they're worried about demographics. Um, and mm. that's where I see the core of the backsliding is coming from. I would say in 2019, if you asked me the question about politics, I would have said, it's just civil society. If you stay outside the realm of fighting for political rights, you're going to be fine. Like gay communities are going to thrive and they're going to grow. But I think now it's taken on this ideological bent where like men are supposed to act like men and women are supposed to act like women. And specifically because these two genders need to procreate right? Like there is a aging population and not enough babies. And if all our men are young, like there's not going to be babies born. I think that's literally the, the calculus behind it. And so I would say like within the LGBTQ community, it's created a little bit of tension because, you know, like apps like Bluedy tend to be a little bit more conservative in the sense that there is a lot of kind of mainstream portrayal of the like perfect gay male relationship where both men are very masculine and it's like, you know, they like start a family and like they are able to have surrogate children. And then there are, you know, trans people who don't fit within that boundary or lesbian couples who oppose surrogacy. And then that creates like all kinds of internal dynamics. Mm -hmm. And Ning, we we've talked in the past about Lan Yu because you know it's it's not a it's not a film that you can screen in China. You know, it's an internet film. When you were producing it, um, you didn't even ask the censors for permission. You didn't even bother. Why why was that? Or was that because of the homosexual themes in there? Or was that because I mean, it's sexually pretty explicit. You know, there were a lot of uh, <laughs> nudity and genitalia in the film. Do you think that there's a sexual prudishness, or is it literally something about it being homosexual? I mean, the the only reason my film Lan Yu was banned in China was purely because the subject, homosexuality, you know, homosexuality somehow has become very, very political, you know, has been seen as being accused as a Western bourgeois lifestyle. So anything from West is, a, is a, it's not welcomed. So, um, so that's why it was, was banned. 
Um, but the thing is, I mean, I mean, look, look at the Chinese television programs, look at the films, and look at all the singers, pop star, you know, stars. You know, they all looking, <laughs> you know, very girly, very queeny, and、uh, they are very popular amongst the audience, and uh, um. So I don't know. It's 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 very hard to say.、Um, all I, I know is、uh, this subject has become very political. So as long as this thing stays political, then homosexuality,、uh, the subject of homosexuality, is is not allowed to talk, or are、uh, going to have very hard time.、Um, so let's see. So. Yiling, then, what do you think about where this trend is going? Because the picture we've painted, you know, to go all the way back through history, is that there's nothing in traditional Chinese culture, perhaps, that's against homosexuality, though you are emphasised to procreate. Then you had deeply communist years, very ideological times, especially the Cultural Revolution. Then you had reform and opening, which came with a social liberalising of society. Do you see it as? Stemming that tide now is it going backwards then, Yiling? Yeah, I guess that you're asking a question that I think that applies to all forms of kind of liberal opening and progress in China. In the sense that, in the long term, I hope that we're moving in the right direction. I think it's very hard to go back into the closet if you know the individual that comes out. Like, it's very hard to be like, okay, now go back, right? There is this kind of like teleological element coming out. It's very hard to force someone back when they have found themselves and who they are. That being said, like Chinese history has always moved in these cycles of feng shui, right? Like when there's opening, there's opening, and all kinds of music comes in, all kinds of entertainment comes in. There's an openness to the West. There's an openness to different forms of love, and then when there is tightening, when there is anxiety, when there is like fear of hostile foreign forces. That you know tightens up again, and so you know looking ahead in the long term, I see that progress will continue. In the short term, I feel very anxious. Like I don't feel worried about the thirty-year-old who already watched Lan Yu, already has a boyfriend, and like is feeling very confident in his sexuality right now. I feel worried for the sixteen-year-old who you know is being told at school by his teacher that like being too young is like. Bad or unethical in some way, and has not received that type of, you know, coming out experience that I think every young person should be able to. And so, yeah, long term, long term, good. Short term, bad. That's <laughs> that's how it up. Yeah. Yeah. Zhang Youning and Liu Yiling, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thanks for having us. And I'd really recommend listeners seek out Lan Yu if they can. It's not online, so you have to keep an eye out for it in indie cinemas or viewings. And if you enjoyed this episode, remember you can sign up for an upcoming free Chinese Whispers newsletter at spectator.co.uk/whispers.